Hey, welcome to Adventist Voices. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I just wanted to jump in here. We've been doing a series with Adventist Peace Fellowship. That will continue, but I wanted to share this recent conversation I had with noted author Matthew Vollmer. He is the director of the MFA program in creative writing at Virginia Tech University. He got his own MFA at the world-famous Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he's also Ted Wilson's nephew. His latest book, All of Us Together in the End, published by Hub City Press, explores his ambiguous feelings about Adventism, and also uh, there's a sense of uh, loss exacerbated by the passing of his mother, and uh, he really beautifully explores his relationship with his father and the kind of larger cultural and uh, spiritual connections that we have to religion. So it's an honor to share Matthew Vollmer with you. We have a review of his book by the fantastic uh, writer and professor Sari Fordham, and we will also have an excerpt of his Peculiar People chapter in the forthcoming issue of the journal, which should be in mailboxes in a few weeks, and that will also appear on the website. So lots of really great uh, reading and ideas for you, thanks to uh, Matthew Vollmer, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Matthew Vollmer. Thanks for talking with all of us today. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking with you for a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, your writing, and we'll be talking about your book released this year, All of Us Together in the End, uh, published by Hub City Press. Uh, I want to talk to you about Adventism because you write really thoughtfully about it, uh, exploring um, the complexity of growing up an Adventist and thinking about our professional life and what it means to kind of mix all of these identities together. And um, since you're an accomplished writer, the New York Times calls your writing irresistible. So I also want to just talk about the state of the humanities and um, get your thoughts on why we read, why we write, why it matters. Great. Sounds awesome. First off, let's talk about your book, this labor that you've uh, gone through. Um, can you talk about what uh, kind of drove you and some of the themes that were important for you to explore? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, uh, you know, I had wanted to write a book about Adventism and, and you know, years before when I was a student at at the Idle Writers Workshop, I got an idea. I thought it was the best idea I'd ever had, and nobody disabused me of it. Um, 
It was a book that was supposedly to take place at a boarding school narrated by a demon. Oh, nice. Who was um, no longer a part of Satan's horde. He was hiding out in at the Christian boarding school because he was addicted to teenagers and possessing teenagers because as an insensate being, teenagers, especially Christian teenagers, were just full of longing and desire and and like because everything was forbidden to them, you know, everything from, you know, eating a, a piece of beef jerky to uh, looking at a playboy to holding hands with a girl during Vespers was just they were charged with with these moments of incredible, you know, um, sensation. And so there was that. But he also longed to return to heaven. And um, there was nothing like being in, uh, you know, an Adventist kid singing Pass It On uh, during Afterglow to to feel like you were really connected to the divine. It turns out writing a book about a demon who's possessing <laughs> kids is really hard. Uh, I did all of this research um, and like I, I, I read like the Malaeus Maleficarum uh, translated into Hammer of the Witches yeah. um, that was used by the Catholic Church to, um, you know, oppress women and charge them with witchcraft. And I read, you know, the history of Satan and you know, I mean, just all of, all of this stuff. And I just couldn't make it work. So I decided to try to write something like straight ahead about boarding school. And um, but of course, if I'm going to write about boarding school, I've got to write about Adventism and I've got to write about growing up Adventist and I've got to write about maybe, you know, um, you know, uh, leaving that faith community and and also like not being able to leave that faith community. Um, and so I wrote um a memoir a number of years ago that I I completed in uh I I completed a draft of in 2019 and that was you know it was a book that was similarly structured to this one in that it is somewhat associatively driven and structured it's um like you know one thing kind of leads to another uh, that's vignettes um and it it was about you know growing up in rural western north carolina in the mountains and feeling isolated from you know the town that i grew up in because i didn't go, i went to church school i went to uh, avenus uh elementary school with you know 30 kids in grades one through eight and then i went to boarding school after that um and and then i went to uh i went to andrews university and then Atlantic Union College before I transferred to to the University of of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and and that and going in of course at the college years as as is often the case for many Adventists when they they find their their knowledge about themselves and about their faith to to become a little bit more complex and um, and you know you you make discoveries and and whatnot. But anyway, that that book was. You know, I delivered it uh, just a few days before my mom died. Hmm. My mom was diagnosed um, uh, with uh, dementia when she was only 64. Hmm. Um, just 
that was an that was incredibly devastating for our family because she was kind of the rock. She was, um, you know, she played piano in church every Saturday. Um, she ran the quote unquote fruit program, which is what uh, we used to to generate money for our church school. Um, she managed my dad's office, dental office, and was just all around like you know, pr- basically the happiest person I've ever met. And who was like the nicest Adventist mom you could you could imagine. You know, she got up every morning and read Spirit of Prophecy and or uh, her Bible, you know, um, and uh, just, you know, never complained, never um, said a single word of criticism about about the church that she loved. Mm. And um, and then here I was coming along and. <laughs> and not only, you know, defying the fact that she had raised me in the ways I should go, and I di- diverted from from those ways, but but was actually writing about it. Um, of course, at that point, uh, when when she was sick and and on her deathbed, she had no idea um, that I was writing this book. But a reason I mention it is because you know I turned it into my agent um, a couple of days before she died, and. You know, you can be expecting a parent to die for a decade and not know how you're going to feel yeah. and what it's going to be like for them not to be, you know, in the world anymore. Um, and so, you know, I talked to my agent um, who <laughs> he said, you know, I don't know about this book. Uh, do people really want to read about personal grief? Because it was also about my mom being sick. Um, and and dying and and i i was on the phone with him and i just thought to myself dude have you have you read literature (laughs) 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 and and, but anyway i realized you know i had another colleague uh my friend evan lavender smith here at virginia tech read it and he also thought it needed more work maybe more more structure and um and so i was ready to ready to revise it Uh, but then three months after my mom died these lights started appearing mm-hmm. in the woods um, in the house where my mom and dad had had lived uh, for the last or ever since almost 20 years. Um, and I'm um, oh, sorry, almost 30 years. And uh, my dad called me up and, and told me about him and basically came to the conclusion that they weren't human in origin Hmm. and he didn't say anything else Mm -hmm. other than that, but they weren't human in origin. And so, you know, I live five hours away. Um, It's, it, you know, we only get to visit a couple times a year. Um, But so I I got on the phone with him every day for a couple months and basically just kept a journal because I knew he would, he never would. He doesn't, Mm-hmm. you know I, I he doesn't write things down and <laughs> <laughs> um so i documented his experience day after day some days he'd see them someday he wouldn't so for some nights he wouldn't and then they they began to evolve they began to change they were different colors different shapes different iterations and although he was able to capture a video early on of just like it's a minute it's about a minute long video 
and you have to watch it in the dark and you see like two or three little little like flashes in the in the in the night hmm. but every time after that he would reach for his phone and he, he would so much as touch his phone let's say that there's a, a incredible light show going on outside his window it would just go dark immediately and so um you know i decided to go down there and um i witnessed the lights it's in the book the way that it happens and um and so i was also i was also asking other people like what they thought this could be because everyone i told who wasn't an adventist were like oh those lights are your mom right mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and i was like well <laughs> that's not theologically correct <laughs> <laughs> that's right and and you know my you know and it came you know my dad you know thought it was at one point at least thought it could be demonic in nature um but i talked to like a shaman uh, a priest I talked to a geography pr- professor who had studied "quote unquote" ghost lights, um, and I talked to a number of other, pe- like literally anyone who would listen to me, talk about this this stuff, and and kept on documenting it. But then COVID hit, mm-hmm. and you know that I felt like that was timely, and that and like you know it was the you know one time I went down there to look at the lights, I was looking out the window of my dad, and I realized this is the first time in my life that I've stood in a place of uncertainty with him. Hmm. Both are looking at something that we, we both don't know what it is and we don't have answers. And it felt really profound. And, um, and then COVID was like a magnification of that for everybody, right? Like, what is this thing and how are we going to deal with it and how are we going to survive it? And, and, you know, it just seemed like whatever anybody wanted to say that it was, they could say that. Right. And, um, and then during COVID, my dad reconnects with an old flame. Um, and, you know, within months, they're married. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> um, the you know, apocalypse. Just, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like, it's like a three act thing, right? It's the lights, it's COVID, it's, mm-hmm. it's my dad uh, reconnecting with that old flame and um, me trying to make sense out of all this stuff while reflecting on who my mom was on what adventism was for me as a kid uh what it what it means to be now um and you know not not returning to adventism but being able to appreciate aspects of it and acknowledge that it it in part makes the people i love who they are Mm, yeah Let's get into that here on uh, toward the end here on page 227. You kind of put together this meal, uh, make it yourself taco salad called Haystacks. And this. Oh, nobody listening to this has ever heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you write, I can no longer remember what we talked about during this meal. Only that it began with my uncle Ted, Ted Wilson, disagreeing with my aunt Melinda about whether or not government should involve themselves in dictating how their citizens should think or act. I will um, let folks buy your book and read um, how that goes, but you are really serious about thinking about Adventism. You're steeped in it. 
your uh, peculiar people chapter help kind of digs into some of the history, which is something that I find over and over again that I kind of feel like I'm in a conversation with someone. I was just recently hanging out with kind of mainline Christians, Presbyterians, Methodists. We're seated around the table and I kind of misheard a question and I thought, okay, well, I've got to do this. 28 fundamental beliefs. Let's go. You know, uh, you, somebody asked a question. I guess we'll do this. Okay. We got to start in the 1830s, uh, go through. And it's, it's, and I haven't read anyone who sort of captures that feeling of like, okay, do you really want to know this? Because it's really complex. And if I don't do this right, it's going to sound extremely odd or irrational. And, I would like you in some way to recognize that this can be a somewhat coherent story, but it takes a lot of work. You put a lot of work into that chapter, it seems like, because you give us history, but you're also dealing with that classic kind of should I stay or should I go um, reality that so many of us who kind of grow up multi-generations deep into this tradition deal with. So, um, yeah, how did you decide how deep into Adventism you could go for what will be read mostly by folks who have no idea uh, what, what we're talking about here? Right. Um, I think that, well, part of that is like, it's an interesting question, like, what is a Seventh-day Adventist? Um, very few people that I've met who aren't Adventists have been able to give me the correct response. Um, and I, and, you know, I've, I think it might even say in the book, like I've been teaching at non-Adventist institutions for the last 23 years of my life. And I've only had one Adventist that I knew of in, in class. Um, although I did have one of my, one of my current former students who's from Honduras. Um, she grew up quasi Adventist. Her dad was Adventist and her, her, um, her mom's side of the family was Catholic. But anyway, I usually say like, okay, it's in the name, right? Seventh-day Adventist, you know, they observed the Seventh-day uh, Sabbath and they, they look forward to the soon advent or, or return of Jesus Christ. That's the easiest way to say it. And like, you know, like, well, I heard you know, someone say, well, I heard they don't like, they don't accept blood transfusions. And I was like, no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> they wear magical underwear? No, no, that's not it. Um, uh, so the other ones. <laughs> yeah. And then I, t I mean, the, the funny thing to me was, I mean, I, it's actually not funny to me, but it's just funny to other people. When I talk about, um, you know, William Miller in 1840, October 22nd, 1844, and how everybody, you know, all the Millerites were looking forward to that as the the day that Jesus was going to come back. And afterwards, it was known as the great disappointment. Like, I would say probably like nine out of 10 people laugh at that. Like when I say the great disappointment, and it never <laughs> occurred to me as a kid at all that, that there was anything remotely funny about, <laughs> about that phrase. Um, and I don't think that Adventists, like conservative Adventists are very good at all about um self-deprecation or or laughing at themselves yeah. i mean i remember when that 
I, what is the, there's some, I don't even know if it's, if it's still current, but there's a, there's like an Adventist website that's, that's sort of like the onion with fake headlines, like. Oh, barely Adventist. Barely Adventist. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some hilarious stuff on that with like Ted Wilson pardoning a tofurkey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I mean, it, it, but the thing of it is, like, Adventists love to laugh. I mean, I, I, like, my family, Adventists on both sides, going back generations, hilarious people, really funny, really witty, uh, charming, smart, uh, smart people. So, how did I figure out what to? I mean, part of it was like the strategy of like, you know, what Adventists will tell you about themselves and what probably they won't right they're probably not going to tell you that they're the co-founder of their denomination wrote a book that was about how if you engaged in self-pleasure you were going to you know put yourself in an early grave right um Adventists don't even talk about that amongst each other as far as i know um so i, I wanted to get like some secrets in right uh but i also wanted to honor the complexity and that there's a spectrum um of you know ways in which one can um express their Adventist theology um you know and and that it's a culturally rich and diverse uh people um and I mean they are peculiar but that's something to be proud of um yeah distinctive when you so much of how you relate to it is not about beliefs but about family you talked mm -hmm. to, already about your mother and your father can you talk more about how that um you know you, you maybe tie it in i'm kind of interested in how you went from kind of adventist uh universities outside what drove that um and maybe tie that in with talking about, you know, the way that you sort of explore the way, you know, you enjoyed the Worthington products that you ate. You enjoyed singing those songs in Sabbath school and, yeah. you know, the, the, the kind of you go beyond the normal stories, the normal stories we get is you're, you can kind of be, uh, you can kind of rebel. That's language that's allowed to use. If it's a couple of decades ago, backslide is kind of the yeah. term. And so, and, and so much of that involves disappointing our parents or yeah. see how other parents are disappointed. Even shame is involved there. Um, and, and I, and you really treasure family and you're able to treasure family and treasure Adventism while looking at it honestly right yeah well my my parents were leaders in the church um you know my dad was a deacon um and my mom as i already mentioned played piano but also like taught sabbath school my dad was also for years the um chairman of the school board at my elementary school and um, the person, if you got enough checks beside your name for being disrupted, that you would have to call. Oh no! <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, and so, so there was that. But they weren't. Um, it's funny because my dad's side of the family, I think of as more conservative, 
um, and my mom's side uh, as less conservative. Like my my grandparents on my mom's side drank coffee, ate meat, went to the movies. Um, people on my dad's side did not. My dad was therefore more liberal than his family. And my mom was more conservative than hers. Hmm. I think, you know, and from my perspective. Um, but they really did um, foreground everything they did with love, I think. Uh, they were selfless. They were generous. They were funny. Uh, they were great storytellers. They loved people. You know, we spent... I don't think we ever ate uh, a Sabbath meal alone, or if I don't, I don't remember eating one alone uh, during my, my childhood, they kept in contact with, you know, my dad was a dentist and it was funny because we had a drawer in our bathroom that was just full of toothbrushes that guests used. Right. And they would have their name on it, like Judy or Michael or whatever. Right. And, and, and so like, they were always being, we were always being visited by, by my dad's, you know, former, you know, dad, mom's former friends from Mount Pisgah Academy or Loma Linda you know, dental school or whatever, or Southern college. Right. And um, so they're very social, but they weren't dogmatic and they weren't punitive in terms of, you know, like on the one hand, I didn't feel like I could, you know, ask if any of this stuff that they were telling me was, was real or, and I probably didn't even think about asking that for a long time. Um, but like, it, here's a, this is an anecdote that um, I like to share. It's uh, having Ted as an uncle um, was very interesting because, you know, I think he comes across as very stern and very, and at times humorless, he's actually very funny and can do a variety of uh, accents from all over the world. Um, he, uh, but anyway, he, he, he was very particular about the ways in which, you know, things happened. And so when he came to our, our, uh, our house, if he was there on Friday, he would just say, okay, everyone gather around. We're going to have family worship. And I was like, we are like we don't do that like we, we would we would like have you know maybe put on a some sacred music or something as 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 the sunsets and of course we have our special friday night dinner but we didn't have like you know formal worship per se i mean and this could have been on a tuesday right <laughs> um and and when i shared that with my dad one time he said well you know you did that uh when once when neil wilson ted's dad former gc president was visiting he did the same exact thing except you were three years old at the time and you said what's worship <laughs> <laughs> my dad was apparently really embarrassed because um, <laughs> it revealed his own worship family worship negligence um but yeah so like i i always thought of my parents as being like just good people and in fact i i resented like I, I couldn't find any faults in them as, as a young kid i was like what do they do wrong like what are they surely they you know they they aren't perfect but i can't see how and i kind of you know resented that because i would have that made me have to live up to so much more um as for the as for the college thing like you know 
it's interesting because I feel like I talked in my, when I went up for tenure, I felt like I talked about like the Adventist church insisting that I be literate mm -hmm. and be able to analyze scripture you be a close reader of scripture right like that gave me the tools to kind of dismantle um a lot of what makes adventism you know for to me a like any religion a human construct um that's and, really interesting yeah and um so when i went off to college i didn't know what i was going to do I, I just figured i thought maybe journalism um, whenever I said, whenever I told people that I was, and when I became an English major, like if an Adventist person heard that they would be a, oh, that's great. We need good writers, you know, as if I was going to like work for the re review and Herald or something. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but anyway, I, I went to AUC because I was miserable at Andrews. Um, I hated the weather. I didn't make many friends. Um, I was dating a, uh, a young woman at the time that I had been dating in boarding school, we weren't getting along. Um, and my friend Todd Wimmer, who's uh, who's now a professor of journalism at Endicott College in Massachusetts, had just come back from Newbold and had met some people there who were going back to AUC. And he was like, you need to come here. It has this legendary English department. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother, my dad's mom, had... Um, been best friends and roommates in college with Audley Stafford, who is this like, you know, just yeah. if if you're an Adventist and you're an English major, there's no way you haven't heard about Audley Stafford. Right? She, I mean, she trained Roy Branson. <laughs> right, right. And um, so I went to AUC. She gave me a job um, working in the adult degree program, which she she headed in addition to being professor of, of English there. And it was a real education. Just like, I remember just like moving her books from, she moved offices and I, I was in charge of moving her books and, and just seeing her books was an education, right? Mm -hmm. She had read everything. I had incredible classes uh, at, at AUC. You know, we read the modernists, we read the romantics. We, um, we, I took an intro to philosophy class Um that was in incredible. Uh, um, and, but then my sophomore year at the end of my sophomore year, all of my friends or the majority of my friends were like two years older than I was and they were moving on. They were graduating and I didn't know, I wasn't crazy about staying there, but one of my friends from elementary school was, was um, moving to, to the university of North Carolina. Um, to to do pre-med and he was like you should come with me we'll get to go see Tar Heel basketball games and you know it'll be really fun and it's really cheap it's way cheaper than going to Adventist school and I said and so I started looking into it I was like wow I could actually study with writers like who are publishing outside of their the denomination in which they're you know being employed and so that was exciting to me and I remember Ted actually asking me, um, well, what do you think you could ever get at a not Adventist school that an Adventist school could provide? And I don't remember how I answered him, but I just remember that he'd asked me that and that my parents hadn't 
hadn't tried to sway me from from doing this. I mean, I, they said if you really want to be, if you really think that that becoming a writer, and they loved my writing. My dad, my dad really, I mean, I think to this day his favorite stuff of mine was poetry I was writing in at GCA um, when I was sixteen. You know, um, <laughs> but because um, it was an outpouring of powerful feelings, and he was like, oh. You know, I didn't know. I had no idea that you could do this. Um, wow. That's a great dad. <laughs> yeah, he and he he has a he has a great dad, and um, so he, you know, they always um, encouraged me to write, um, and my dad was always proud of me. He, for years, and maybe he still has it. He kept it like a sheaf of my poetry, you know, printed out on dot matrix uh, <laughs> pages in his dental office, so he could show his patients, like, look what my son did, you know. Nice. Uh, but in fact, it turned out that, you know, the University of North Carolina did have some things to teach me that I couldn't find <laughs> at an Adventist college, such as Japanese literature. And uh, I took a class on Taoism and I took a class on on myth and religion. And um, I, I took a class on Milton um, and another in 17th century lit and, you know, discovered that people like John Donne had written, uh, you know, just as passionately, well, way more passionately than Ellen G. White about, about spirituality and, and God. And, um, and it was really interesting to, to be introduced to different kinds of, theologies um you know just interpretations of reality um and and that was um you know i still wouldn't um take tests on saturday i still wouldn't um work on on sabbath and um uh, but i i wasn't i certainly wasn't going to church because in my mind i felt like well i can I don't need the church to keep the Sabbath and I still believe in God. And I remember I had an astronomy class um, and I went and asked the guy, the teacher, um, if he believed in God. And he said, no, I only believe in things I can see. And that was really dissatisfying to me as was, I think the, I think the last essay we had to write in that class or the last project was what are the chances that astronomy has it all has it all wrong? And I think I, I think my answer was 50, 50. <laughs> <laughs> and I also remember like looking, I, cause I kept all my class notes. I remember in my Milton class when we we're talking about, you know, obviously that, that is about the fall of Adam and Eve, or I mean, paradise lost obviously is about the fall of Adam. And Eve. That's what we spent a lot of time on. And I remember writing in the notes, like something about like when, when sin entered, you know, did it affect the entire universe or just Earth? Right. Um, so I, you can look back and see me wrestling with mm. with all the things that I was taught to believe um, and and then learning, you know, learning new ideas and seeing other relevant ways of of spiritual uh, expression. Um, maybe let me read from your book again and we can go from there because I think you're getting to your, you know, this, I, there's a kind of, um, 
the kind of gradualism to what you're talking about here. This, you know, you're at North Carolina, but you're, um, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're filtering, you know, what you're learning through an Adventist lens still. And I think yeah. that's, that's interesting because, you know, folks, ex-Adventists, you know, Spectrum comments are got quite a few folks who have decidedly left and yet read every single article we put up 365 days a year. And there's that lens there that, you know, I kind of, I don't really consider them ex-Adventists. They can define themselves how they are. But when you're that interested and, you know, you're talking about what happened with Des Ford um, and you speak of it almost in the present tense, it, there's there's still a sense of remaining. And so you say the question of how I got out of or left the denomination seems to be one that I'm most often called upon to answer. And I don't know that I've ever told the truth to anyone who's ever asked it. And that includes myself, which I, I love that um, sort of Socrates kind of moment here where you're taking us along into uh, a journey of self-awareness. When searching for an answer to this question, my brain, which has been conditioned to prefer the concrete and think of time as a linear progression, automatically attempts to scroll backwards so as to assign significance to a particular moment in time, perhaps one in which I came to some realization or experienced an epiphany. I won't go on from there. Um, it's always fun reading your, uh, it's not painful for you to hear your writing out loud. It's no, not at all. I like this idea of really thinking, wait a second, Adventism really, you know, defines itself by a, a, a very strong historicist sense of time as something that kind of rolls forward and back, mostly in Ellen White's mind for all of us to understand. And here you're kind of maybe broadening and taking us into, um, well, uh, you kind of hinted at the ways that reading textual study in Adventism has its own deconstructive element inside. If you take seriously an interpretive lens and hermeneutics, once you get uh, into that, it can actually, as many of us have found, be really enriching. And, um, and yet it can also be um, undermining to that and that broadening out not just a kind of linear okay when when did this person leave the faith you you shy away from that very simple um i think too simple um answer yeah because i you know i've been listening to um some adventist podcast or ex-adventist podcasts uh, recently, and I can't remember the name of one of them. It may have it's not Haystacks and Hell, which I was, which I'm, I'm going to be on soon. It, oh, great! There might have been. Is there another one that has Haystacks in the title? Uh, I just know Haystacks and Hell off the top of my head. There's so many. Um, it's a couple. Yeah, I mean, there's the couple. It, it, it the podcast is led by a couple. It's they haven't put anything out for a while. Uh, but anyway, the the woman um, was saying that she tends to think of Adventism as a kind of ethnicity. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense for me to think about it that way. Like, I feel like, you know, sure. I mean, being a Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian has, you know, 
has these fundamental elements that if you if you grew up in that in those churches, there are going to be things that that you can immediately connect with people um, who have who you meet who have who have grown up in those same the same churches. But in Adventism, it's just there's so much about the culture, so many touch tones, touch tones that you know I, I could I could be. Um, you know, I could I could drive to Alaska and go to an Adventist church there, and we could have conversations about all kinds of shared experiences. Um, and that's really interesting to me. And um, it also, you know, for years I think I was I was resentful, um, especially about my about the the people and relatives in my life who were especially conservative. Um, and eventually I came and it was, it had a lot to do with my mom dying. Um, but even before then, I feel like I, I kind of stopped caring what people believed um, because why would it be up to me? And why would it have anything to do with, with me if they wanted to believe whatever they could. Um, but then once my mom died, I realized that how deeply connected all the members of my family were to her and that, you know, each one knew her and appreciated her. I mean, there wasn't a single person in my family that didn't like my mom. <laughs> right. And I, and I probably, you know, you could count on one hand, the people who didn't like her in her life. Um, so, so I would be missing out, you know, if I, if I, you know, tried to avoid ever having conversation with my uncle Ted, even though we're diametrically opposed in our theology and ways of thinking and ways of going about in the, in the world. Um, you know, I would, I would be missing out on someone who knows and appreciates my mom and who, and who honestly has really never shown anything but but love and affection. Um, so, you know, I, although I don't consider myself to be an Adventist, I mean, I'm not a member of the church anymore. Um, I, I have a deep appreciation and, and love for it. And I feel like, I sometimes feel like if there was like a, if there was like an Episcopalian Adventist church I could go to, <laughs> I might be interested. Um, but I also, I also am just really into the idea of, of like knowing about all religions, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like there is something to, to appreciate. I mean, all religions to me are human constructs. They are, they were made by, it doesn't mean that they they don't contain truths, um uh but i think it's important to note that so that so that you don't exclude you know the buddhist at your table that you don't exclude the hindu at your table because they probably see and have words for things that that you might not you know i saw a tiktok in the last year or so where someone was saying like that they thought of religions as languages and that really stuck with me because no one says like you're wrong for speaking Chinese or you're wrong for speaking Spanish or English. It's just, that's, that's how you express yourself. And, and these are the sounds that you've been taught 
in order to use to express yourself, right? Um, and so I, I want to be in a position where I can appreciate the diversity of the Earth's religions and to think about them and um, and find ways to believe in all of them because I, 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 I can't imagine that there's a religion that doesn't, that exists that doesn't have some truth in it. Yeah. Well, that would be a great place to end, but I wanted to chat with you about writing and reading and the humanities. And obviously it was, a it's your career. Um, it's your livelihood. It's uh, a creative outlet. It's also part of your story, you know, in and around Adventism as well as, and, and, you know, identify so much with the books that you mentioned and the importance of taking philosophy, thinking about um, other religions, all, you know, the best parts of the humanities experience in many ways. And I'm just curious why, you know, why a career in that matters to you and why you think, uh, you know, why it matters in the world, um, taking time to address these things, especially in an age where things have to be so uh, commodified, practical, um, sitting around and, and reading and writing. Why does it matter? Well, I think that a, a whole lot more people sit around reading and writing than are given credit to, um, in part because <laughs> We all carry baby televisions around in our pockets that can let us communicate with each other instant instantaneously. And you know, like people, pe people my age or older who aren't in academia and have no idea what it's like will will basically say, "Oh, what are the kids like now? I bet their writing is horrible." <laughs> I'm like, "No, it's better than ever," because they're constantly engaging with their, 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 their text. They have their own voice, right? They, they, they're, they're writing, even if they're not writers. Um, and then, and then the ones who want to be writers, I feel like are just, they're really, they're really gifted. I mean, I, maybe it's just Virginia tech. I mean, I've never had a bad class in 17 years here. Um, I've had some amazing and brilliant students um, and, and colleagues Um but, but why does it matter? I mean, I think that um, it matters more than ever because we have, in part because we have, you know, phones in our pockets and we're in, we're getting information at a rate, you know, that's unprecedented. And we need a we need a critical apparatus in order to reflect upon that, in order to um, interpret it. And, and and to know that it can you know that everything has more than one interpretation um and that the more dogmatic we become the, the more closed off we are to those interpretations the more in danger we are of of um not only well in perpetuating fraudulence um and perpetuating fictions um you know the book opens with um an epigraph from the case for God and by Karen Armstrong, where in which she quotes Karl Popper as saying the most profound thing a human being can say is that they know nothing. And I really love that uh, because it keeps, it keeps the door open for, for learning. And it also, um, 
I think it that's that quote embodies a kind of humility, right? That that is often um is not often depicted in, you know, the news that we get about what's going on in our country in the world. It's like everyone thinks they know everything all the time and they're arguing and they're, you know, um but also, you know, I, as I tell my students, like, the, can they think of anything that's not a story, right? Like everything, everything that's being communicated, everything is narrative. Everything is narrative. One plus one equals two. That's a story, you know. And we've been told stories our entire lives. Um, you know, if if we're ta- if we're talking about science and how we perceive the universe and the world around us, you know. Um, there is no outside everything is happening inside everything is being processed within uh within our bodies um and you know you mentioned before we started that article in the new yorker about english majors uh dying i had a really interesting um conversation earlier today with an author named pinkney benedict who's at uh, Southern Illinois University. And I I had uh, put some feelers out about a project I'd, I am interested in working on about uh, innovative pedagogies and creative writing courses and uh, the decline of the workshop, which is uh, has been for many years the default method of teaching creative writing. For instance, you would bring a story or poem to workshop. Everyone would put their chairs in a circle and you would sit silently as they tore uh your the text apart and they would leave feeling defeated and confused um uh and i want to find ways to um to to create opportunities for writers and artists to engage in wonder and curiosity uh and front load intrigue rather than critique um and so anyway we ha- we were having a conversation and he he was telling me how he uses AI in his classroom and that he, his students use AI um, to create, for instance, one of the things he was saying that he did recently was um, he gave chat GPT uh, a prompt that was uh, give me a list of, let's say 50 titles, possible book titles that are generated from scripture from from quotes from scripture right um where are you going where have you been is a title of the joyce carol oates book which is actually uh, a quote from the book of judges right um and we you know there's spiritual or scriptural allusions all throughout literature of course um but he he used ai for all these different things and he was saying that um what people don't seem to understand is how fast AI is evolving. Um, and like six months ago, you know, some of his former students wrote and wrote a paper, which they're going to present on at a conference six months later, and it's already wildly outdated. Huh. Wow. <laughs> right? So like, information is just in, but the other thing is that he's, he said that he predicted that fairly soon, um, softwares and technologies were going to be connected in such a way that um, really the driving force behind them would not be coders or um, mathematicians or people who knew like 
technology. I mean, that's still going to be important, obviously, but what was really going to be running the show was going to be language. And that in his, in his uh, eyes, that, that people in the humanities were going to be given quote unquote, the keys to the kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) And, and that he had already, he'd already been experiencing this in in his life by running uh, a digital narrative or digital, uh, something about a digital, digital narrative laboratory in which students can create stories, can create narratives digitally, can create games, um, can create um, illustrated stories using AI generated images. And, um, and so that the, the better, the people who will, who will best be able to control AI are those who are most proficient with language because what AI needs in order to operate most effectively is precise language. Hmm. If you use API, if you use AI lazily, it will perform lazily. Yeah. You use it intelligently, it will perform intelligently. That's yeah. really fascinating to me. I got so excited talking to him because I want to, I hope that, that we get to collaborate. And I've always, you know, my whole career, I've heard how, how English is dying and literature is dying and all that. And, and to an extent, the way that literature has been presented, you know, like, oh, you go take a Shakespeare class and that's, you know, that's the thing that is the, is the sun that, you know, the department rotates around is, is literature, you know, <laughs> like, uh, that's going to be changing, right? Like, um, maybe instead of reading Shakespeare, you're gonna, you're gonna take, uh, a course in which you gamify Hamlet, right? Um, or who knows, right? Uh, it's, it's going to be evolving. I mean, un- unless language were to disappear, <laughs> um, I don't think, you know, the humanities have any, um, are, are in danger, you know, and, and, and someone has to write all these Netflix shows everybody's watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I'm very optimistic about the future of, of English studies in the humanities. That's also in my nature. I, I get that from my mom and, and, and my dad, I think um, we've always been a very optimistic family, and um, so I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, there's something optimistic about Adventism, predicated perhaps on that Advent part. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been really great talking with you. Thanks so much for the work that you did uh, in this book and your previous works as well, and. Um, thanks for being part of the Spectrum community and uh, looking forward to uh, publishing an excerpt from your book in the upcoming issue of the journal and uh, uh, wish you all the best on your journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Spectrum is um, it's, it's an honor to be published uh, by Spectrum and to be on this podcast because I've spent uh, many, many hours on, on the website and um, have a, have appreciated Uh, the diversity of of voices there and, and appreciate your work so much yes i knew sister white we will not fear the kingdom is alive